Do you like data centers? Cause I love data centers! I love data centers. I do love data centers. I love data centers. I live and breathe. I do. I love data centers. I love data centers. I love data centers. I love data centers. I Welcome to the I Love Data Centers podcast. This is your host, Sean Patrick Terrio. I am truly humbled and honored that you've taken the time to spend some time with me today. Before we jump in, I'd like to let you know that this episode is brought to you by you. That's right, folks. This podcast exists because you want it to. And despite requests that come in for sponsorship, we have no paid advertising supporting this show. This approach gives me the opportunity to maintain an unbiased voice while conducting these interviews. I do have one request and ask of you, however, if indeed you do find these podcasts interesting and valuable, I would greatly appreciate it if you would do me the simple favor of recommending and sharing it through whatever medium you choose, offline or online. If you want to throw a hashtag, I love data centers in any online shares you do, even better. Thank you once again, and I hope you enjoy listening to this next interview as much as I enjoyed recording it. Mr. Karspekin, how are you, my friend? Welcome to I Love Data Centers. I appreciate you taking the time to join us on the podcast today. Thank you, Chad. So, Hugh, you have quickly become, at least in my book, one of the most interesting people I've ever met in my life. <laughs> okay. The, the stories that you tell just routinely remind me that uh, I have a lot more life to live ahead of me. And that I've, you know, as, as crazy as my life has been, there are those out there who live, live and lead even crazier lives than I do, which I'm sure my wife would find hard to believe. So I can't wait for her to, to hang out with all of us at some point. Uh, Should be fun. Hugh, real quick, so that those listeners know who you are, who are you and, and what are you doing right now? I am CEO of Dark Points MicroEdge Data Centers. We build small incremental uh, data centers in about 200 kilowatt uh, chunks, and these are highly distributed. Um, so we're definitely part of this edge phenomenon, if you will. We've been doing this since about 2012. And I know you're a world traveler, but where do you reside right now? Dallas, Texas. Did you grow up in Texas? I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, just outside of Atlanta. What time frame roughly were you growing up in Atlanta, if you don't mind my asking? 70s and 80s. How did you get involved in technology? Did you have you know, a dad or family members that were also in tech? Not at all. I went to college as a classics major. I was one of about 10 to 15 students in Georgia that could actually read and speak Latin. So that's, I'm not really sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I was passed in my math classes in high school so they can keep me eligible for sports. All my other grades were good. But when I got to college, I started recognizing that there was a lot bigger world out there. I switched my major. I went from classics to history to economics to German to biology to electrical and mechanical engineering. And I stayed with the last two. That's, that's quite a, uh, a broad, did you, did quite you, you on like the it, seven year plan or did you manage to pull that off in four years? Um, well, uh, Dartmouth has a five year engineering program. So you get your AB in four years and then you get your bachelor's of engineering, which is the equivalent of your BS in, um, 
your fifth year. And so I was able to manage some of that. Obviously, my parents were thrilled that I wanted to stay an extra year to get the uh, engineering degree. I was doubling up on classes, which is extremely difficult in the engineering space. And specifically, when you're trying to cram a five-year program, I switched to engineering my fall of my junior year. So I was pretty much busy. I was doing a five-year program in three years. And you were also probably, knowing you, doing five million other things while you were also taking... Well, I appreciate that. I, I would say that, that that pretty much put a pretty significant chokehold on me, <laughs> socially and athletically. Still got out skiing, still got out rock climbing, and so that was fun, and mountain biking. Those were the big things up there. But it was pretty much, and I think my parents pretty much laid down the law saying, you're not switching out of this one, so you're not... So I ended up graduating with the two degrees, electrical, mechanical. I had a lot of, Dartmouth doesn't do minors. I mean, they do, but not really. But and I had about four minors underneath it. Pretty much it filled out all the other majors. So it was, it was, I, I, I got, I got my money's worth. Let me tell you that much. So you briefly mentioned skiing and rock climbing. Yeah. And I know you have a number of hobbies. Yeah. What, what are just, just so our listeners have a, you know, very quick, broad overview of the many talents of, of Hugh Chris Beckin. What are the different things that you've, you've done over the years that other people, such as our listeners and myself, would be like, what the heck? <laughs> yeah, I was the sports that I've played, uh, started off running. I was the youngest person at seven to complete there's a there is a road race in Atlanta it's a 10k at seven I was the youngest to complete that road race I think my time I can't remember it now it might have been like 52 minutes or something so that the big deal is always whether you got your t-shirt on this on this 10k race and I I, I think it was only like within the last 10 years that it actually got passed by another I think the person who beat me was maybe six years old but anyways, I was I was always pretty quick so I, I, I ran, competed in what we call the Junior Olympics, not nearly the scale of the Olympics at all. They're always regional and they call it junior. Just, it just meant that they were kind of bringing the, the, the fastest into these races. And so pretty solidly, a miler, long distance runner, a lot of cross country. I also got into martial arts early, the Joe Corley days. It might have been his hairstyle that kind of intrigued me. It was not quite the, the martial arts that we see today. There was not as many pads back then. Obviously, I wouldn't say UFC, AFC, well, MMA have got the uh, any pads, but the uh, you, you 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 unfortunately you broke a few fingers and toes trying out your moves, and but that was fun. I, I did that all throughout high school and college, and then a little bit after college, I would say I was a decent batting average in my in my fights, so that was fun. I enjoy all the arthritis and the. Uh, uh, only able to breathe out one side of my nose due to that, but it was a lot of good good stuff. In college, I got into mountain biking and rock climbing up in New Hampshire. There was nothing else to do. Obviously, I'd skied my whole life. We're blessed to be able to head out. Our next door neighbor in Atlanta owned part of Aspen back then, which was <laughs> a wonderful gift because he would always come over with, with his little medallions and be like, hey, if you can drive the family wagon out to uh, Aspen, you're, uh, you you can stay for free and ski for free. So that was fantastic. But anyway, so it's skied a bunch of to have. Wish I had that name yeah. growing up. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, he was a he was a land developer, and so he um, clearly he had 
you know, heard the bug back in the fifties and sixties and got on top of it. I do not have those contacts anymore. So uh, I definitely miss that. But so when I got out of college, I moved to Seattle, down to San Fran. At that point, I went very, very competitively in the mountain bikes, got into the 100-mile mountain biking rides, and the Leadville was a ton of fun. Started doing that late 90s, did it for a couple of years, uh, which is always disappointing because I always lost to those that lived up in Colorado and Utah because they would... Leadville starts at about 10,000 feet, and I was practicing my 100-milers at 300 feet, so that was a big difference. All the California guys are always disappointed that they couldn't get get their times down, but that was it, those were some of the activities that I do. I don't do anything now, so I, I didn't you know, invest in, in golf, so I'm a miserable golfer. Um, there's a lot of folks in the industry that can attest to that. I actually hit a ball backwards once, which was pretty impressive at Band of Dunes uh, with the wind. But uh, so a lot of those were fun glory days. I, you were in a rock band. band. I think I recall a story about being uh, in a rock band too. I, 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 I play guitar and I, I, I have, I knew a lot of the folks, Stroke 9 and, and Vertical Horizon and uh, played with them a little bit. And that was not obviously as part of the band, but it was, uh, they, these guys always had side gigs. And so I, I was the silly guy playing rhythm guitar and uh, it was interesting watching their lives, which were very, very different from mine. And uh, how they collected their money was very different, but ton of fun. And I, I did, I, I did make the mistake of pulling a Ross with leather pants once, and that was uh, that was an interesting moment um, when I couldn't get the leather pants off for about six hours. And that was very much a true, very true experience in terms of those that do think they're going to venture into the wonderful world of leather pants and no talcum powder. It's a, <laughs> it's a challenge, <laughs> but that was a bit, that was a dare. So long story short, when we could, you could probably keep going and going, you, you are quite possibly the most interesting man in the world. Uh, I am not. There are folks that, no, I don't know. That, I, I don't know yeah. you. I don't know. So with, with the stories though, that you have and yeah. the, you know, the, the traveling that you've done, like why, why are you in, the industry that we are in. There's so many other paths that your life could take you down and, and industries that you could be spending your time in and, and making money in and supporting your family with. Why this one? Why the data center world? I don't know. I think I've backed into the data center world. That is, uh, I, I, I cut my teeth out in Silicon Valley. Uh, that was really quite, quite interesting to see how technology worked. You know, back in the 90s, Silicon Valley was a, an, an unusual place. A lot of fast money, a lot of, a lot of success, a lot of failures. Just was, it was kind of, it, it was very exhilarating. And I think that I kind of, it, it, it came in with my personality. You, uh, what was interesting about Silicon Valley and ultimately in the tech industry, it's very flat. I know there's hierarchy involved and I, I'm not going to argue that. But in the valley, there was a. It was almost kind of uh, everybody. Everybody was at the table. As long as you can 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 walk the walk and talk the talk, you were you were at that table, and and you were only a step or two away from some pretty serious hitters. And um, having entered into the room with some of these folks, uh, 
silly things, just, re- you know, recognizing that you're having sushi, you know, and sitting behind you with, with Steve Jobs. And that's, you know, that's it. Realizing that you had that access to those types of people kind of resonated. And again, Silicon Valley continues that, that, that path. And obviously I'm, I'm a little bit more steroids now. And it's pretty, pretty crazy right now. And I, I think I caught the bug. Uh, I, I, I helped start a company in the 2000 timeframe, which was, I, I, before that, I, I was a part of a couple startups where just by a complete fluke, one of the founders was, uh, well, the CEO of the company, his name was Hugh. My name was Hugh and, and Hugh's not the most common name in the world. And so he was receiving my phone calls and emails and I was receiving his. And so he finally just gave up and said, look, you're, you're getting some pretty, pretty privileged information. So let's just be friends. And so we, um, he just kind of took me under his wing and showed me some of it. And it was quite, um, quite interesting. I learned a lot about technology and, and how it, um, how you build companies, how you kind of sell the nature of the company. And so uh, when we uh, all got together and kind of started up, uh, one of these companies, it, it, it kind of stuck with me. It was a lot of fun, uh, very painful. Um, again, that was kind of the adrenaline. And, but the one thing that is, is uh, through and through, I'm a telecom access guy. Uh, when I came straight out, I, I, I worked for GTE in kind of their executive development program, which allows you to see, you do three rotations. It takes about a year and a half to two years, but you do three rotations in state-of-the-art technology, um, not as a part of an assignment, hey, just sit here and shuffle paper, paper, but we're going to put you out with something that is a brand new technology at the time. It was um, data over the cellular channel, so wireless, and that was uh, that was CDPD, so that was a predecessor to GSM almost, and uh, then also uh, ADSL, which you know obviously became a common household name with DSL, but that we did that for for Microsoft. So you saw a lot of different technologies. I saw wireline. I saw obviously the data side. Saw the upstart, you know, how where Cisco was starting to blow up, and understanding where that infer, you know wh- where the, what that technology was seeing the cellular technology. So I've always had several separate swim lanes in my career from wireless to data to telecom uh, operations, uh, things like that. So those are, so as I started applying to my own companies, uh, the successes and and, and the failures, uh, I started recognizing trends. And that is one of the things in, in technology that uh, the trends are not as as complex as people make them out to be, and so when I recognized that everything has was going high, highly, highly distributed back in the 2010, 2011 timeframe, I started asking myself, why are people continuing to to centralize their data when the very means of accessing it are distributed, and not not forecasting in any way, shape, or form. Uh, the, the the death or demise of larger data centers, not at all. I mean, th- those are going to continue to grow. But I noticed that the, the 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 data world as a whole, telecom, wireless, everything was all starting to converge, and, and not in a you know the converged platform that very specific products that people talk about, but as a whole. Uh, and this was becoming quite universally accepted and adapt uh, adapted and adopted throughout the market. And so we started looking at this and saying, wait a second, if, if, if this data starts, this cloud, which at the time was quite, quite new back in the 2009, 2010 timeframe, and everything was about this, this cloud, 
And they're saying, if this cloud ends up going all the way to the hop right before your cell phone, and I'm not saying the cell tower necessarily, just the hop necessary uh, next step your phone, then completely different resources are required. And having been privy to, I wouldn't say mistakes, but all the poor decisions that the telecom access market, uh, the data market have been doing for years. There's just been tons of stopgap technology. And so this problem was getting harder and harder to solve. And so that's kind of what brought me into, hey, let's let's build these small data centers and let's look at placing them in areas that aren't necessarily um, conducive to a large data center, but is quite conducive to the needs of someone very location specific. So that's that actually, I think you talked yourself into an answer right there um, as to how, how you got into the, the industry. Mm. I know um, how I got here, but I yeah. from a from a from a twenty eight year old out of Silicon Valley to a forty seven year old here in Dallas, you know, I, w- I would have looked ahead and said, "Wow, yeah, that's totally where I'm going." Gotcha. Yeah, I've had you told me I'd be doing what I'm doing now in the same time frame. I would have told you you were smoking smoking something because yeah, where I would be, and yet here we are. So we first got connected many moons ago actually probably around the same time when you started your company because uh, I was starting mine back in 2011 and, and you guys started around 2012 um, through a mutual friend of ours, Todd Smith down in Houston, Texas. Okay. Uh, shout out, shout out to Todd. And Todd was like, Hey Sean, I found this company and they focus specifically, not specifically, but one of their focuses is on helping in-house data centers optimize and redesign and re-architect um, their infrastructure and kind of pulling that off of their in-house IT responsibilities and making it a OpEx model for that company versus a, a CapEx expense that they have to manage and take care of, um, which for us, we find very interesting because we are consistently telling the provider uh, ecosystem that their biggest competition is not the data center next door. Their biggest competition is actually the millions of in-house data centers that still exist and the That's IT right. managers that are trying to convince their bosses that maintaining this in-house data center is the best use of their, their money and their time and their, their resources. Um, yeah. So what, how have you seen those conversations evolve over the last seven, eight years as you've been kind of in that world and in that space? Do you think companies are starting to wake up to that paradigm reality that the, the total cost of ownership and the risks and the complexities are really not something that they need to worry about in house or, or what are, what's your perspective on that? Absolutely. I, well, I'm certainly not going to tell you that I've been wrong for six years. <laughs> I'm being funny. Uh, it is when we started, we looked like we had three eyeballs and when we, as we started, and there's a little bit of a, uh, a pre, uh, kind of a prequel to to uh, dark points where very friendly with with Edmund Wilson. We've got our ties back to my my last company, uh, Fiber Tower, and Randy Brockman of, of of Edge Connects, and 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 in the 2000, I really I would probably say the 2011 timeframe. And it was it, it was just just friendly. Um, it, it, I wasn't associated with them in any way, but they were looking to uh, w- was looking at the overall market from a very high perspective as well as a very detailed perspective. And they had their edge pop strategy. They had taken a look at some of the 
larger uh, uh, saying, hey, do we need to start looking at some of these larger sites? And I'm not going to, you know, I was not privy to their conversations, but that was a very interesting uh, time for me. Um, obviously, they, they, the market and obviously the, their, their customers you know, you know, brought them to the point of, of getting larger because obviously in the data center world, the, the momentum is to get large. And back then, that was absolutely the right call. And one of the things I looked at is, wait, what if I keep this small? What if I keep these in these, at the time, 100 kilowatt chunks, they, they've, they've grown because of, of the customers are, are needing a little bit more. So we're about 200 kilowatt chunks, what we call our increments, what we build in. But at the time, when you walked in, we were we were hitting the headwind of, hey, man, we're all going to the cloud. We're all going to the cloud. And the story didn't quite make sense because when you talk to them about really what their strategies were, these were, these were enterprises. And everybody predicted the, the death of the enterprise data center. And this is just a, a, a rule of life I'll throw out there. Hopefully someone listens to it. You know, whenever you go and read an opinion piece, actually any news for that matter, wherever you get your source, you kind of got to know who the author is and what's their background. And because it's, it's, that's why they're writing it. Uh, very, 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 very few people out of my 47 years have I learned will, will write a piece that is completely discontinuous to them. So, the, the data center market is not just one market. It's very smaller markets. You got, you know, wholesale data centers, retail, the enterprise data centers, and, and those are just the few, and those are just my terms. Obviously, some are very common terms, but there's a lot. People define them very differently. So depending on who you were talking to within the data center world, you had a very completely different answer. And a really telling conversation I had with a very, very large cloud operator back, I think it was the might have been 2014, but was we were just having a conversation and they said, hey, Hugh, with all due respect, you you know, the cloud's not going to get distributed. And then my quip back was, well, right back at you, with all due respect, your cloud is not going to get distributed. And it, I wasn't trying to be flippant. It was, they spent billions of dollars on their cloud. And so you're, you don't unplug computers and start moving them around. I mean, investors kind of have an issue with that. So, we noticed that depending on who you were talking to within these organizations, you got a completely different answer. And so we, what we recognized is that companies had a, a strategy that involved data either in the cloud and an offsite data center or onsite. And there, there was no either or. There was no zero sum. It was a percentage. It was a, it was a, it was a kind of probability. And we noticed that if people were, were, were too far on the cloud, well, then my solution made no sense. But if they had anywhere between 10 and 12% on site, I was a slam dunk. I could really, I could affect their total cost of ownership by, by nearly 50%. And that's, it, it, the number was ranged anywhere between, you know, 35 and 45%, depending on the length of contract. But I could really address their entire total cost of ownership from their telecom to their headcount to the, just time spent to the data center resources. So, Hugh, let's let's. I want to I want to stop you there because you're hitting on a very very important topic that I don't think very many people understand, and the mechanics and the uh, specifics of it, which are apropos for the audience that listens to this podcast, because as you know, it's 
you know, we've got selective strategic fame here. And the people who listen to this are not, you know, Joe, Joe walking down the street. It's people who are in and around our space who understand what we do and why we do what we do. But it's hard for people to wrap their heads around what those numbers are and why those numbers are what they are. So is there, can we take a use case here of, of a company, you know, XYZ company that's doing, let's say, 50 million in revenue. They have an in-house IT department. Uh, they have a in-house data center or data centers that are, are, you know, supporting their business. You know, can we walk through something like that real quick? You know, even if it's high level. Yeah, I, absolutely. I, I um, won't take the time to um, pull up. Obviously, we've got this stuff because we've obviously the customers that we've been serving for a little bit of time. We've got a lot of these these facts. We've been tracking them almost kind of like a a scientific study. And I'll, uh, I'll add some yep. links in the show notes to a couple of the case studies that I know you have written up that we can yep. push out there. And so the we found uh, again there is, and, and and this was so we essentially spent the first five years of our existence, first four years of our existence as a proof of concept. We were blessed that a lot of our proof of concepts were fully filled within a short period of time and generating significant operating margin, which gave us some other issues down the road. Um, a lot of people think that that would be fantastic, but the problem is early success can lead to um, uh, down the road failure. And so we we found uh, as you go into these folks, you, you got the internal IT staff, you got their own, uh, re- the, you've got their internal data center resources, whether they're actually on site or they've got a contract with someone else, but you've got a lot, you've got a lot of fiefdoms and you have a lot of people who'd like to control those fiefdoms. Uh, you know, some people like to use terms like server huggers and it's, it's, it's not that it, it, it's, it's not that simple. Um, there's a real reason why a lot of these folks do maintain this stuff. So when people say, Oh, they're just, uh, they're server huggers and we will, just we'll, we'll, we'll correct them of that bad habit. Well, it's not necessarily a bad habit. It depends on what that server's for. And there's a lot of people that have been caught um, in these very complex, very shiny technologies that have, have made some very bad bets and, 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 had, and been, uh, been burned by it. And so there's a lot of folks that do try to maintain a different strategy. So we found that each enterprise has a very different strategy. And um, getting in and understanding why they're maintaining this. So some people were very simple. They said, guys, I, I just physically do not want to operate my chillers anymore. I don't want to, I don't want to operate it. I don't want to take the call at three o'clock in the morning. Now you're dealing with a life issue. They're just like, this is just driving me nuts. I got other things I got to worry. Uh, we found that a lot of these enterprises are, are, are not spending as much as they should on the IT staff uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, there, there's a lot of dead weight on some of this staff. Um, um, uh, and it's, and it sounds like a negative statement, but, in some cases, you had a very lean staff, and they were they were in, in the same crunch as another staff that had plenty of workers, but they were not nearly as effective. And then now the CFO wasn't providing any funds anymore because they're like, "You're not you're not helping me." So there was it's very political. But what we found, bottom line, is when you placed the data right where the customer wanted it, then you were now allowing the customer to have control back in their corner on the costs that they wanted to reduce, maintain, or in some cases, even increase. So that was uh, when we found that we, uh, uh, 
we have played with a lot of different types of real estate. There's one thing that we've done a good job at. We have figured out how to cost-effectively place critical infrastructure, uh, concurrently maintainable critical infrastructure, in a lot of really boneheaded pieces of real estate. And uh, and not all of them are boneheaded, but we had to we had to really play with this and try to figure out how to how to get this to work. And we know exactly where. And because of that, we can almost kind of predict the future as to where some of this real estate is really just not going to work. And there's some folks that are going after it. And, and we've already seen one of those failures already. But uh, so but one that really settled in was some of the larger commercial real estate properties where you had people in the building itself. And when they recognized that not when they're off at, a, at an offsite data center, they weren't just paying for the data center resources, they were paying to connect to those resources. And both those both of those bills started becoming quite large and 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 almost exactly the same. So what the data center, offsite data center provider was unwittingly doing, and not not to their fault at all, great data center, obviously good 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 product. Maybe it's 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 properly priced. It doesn't actually frankly matter because they were offering their customers Two bills, the bill of the data center, and then the, the customer had to pay to get there. And what we found, and also a lot of people, so that, that was a large chunk of the money saved when you place the resources where they can minimize those costs. We found those costs to dramatically reduce. Some other costs that came in was windshield time, uh, what we call the, the, the lost IT syndrome. Okay. You basically had folks saying, Hey, I'm going out to the data center for the afternoon. I'll see you in the morning. And then they were just gone. So you had six hours of predictive productivity shot. And these are soft dollars. People can't say, Hey, you know, Johnny's not, you know, he, he, he's goofing off. That's not the point, but you had a lot of folks trying to tighten these, tighten these belts. And that's where you saw a lot of the outsourced IT. Uh, and some of these companies were dealing with not just, you know, outsourcing their, their data, but now outsourcing their people. And so there's a lot of it happening at once. And so we gave them a lot better control that they could actually monitor their people, identify who's really doing a good job. Um, we found that that was, you know, if we took, took a look at about a hundred dollars of savings, let's just say as a, a simple math personnel represented about 10%, uh, telecom costs represented about 40%. Uh, and then there was efficiencies and platforms that kind of made up the difference. So another 30, 40, 50% uh, that we found um, uh, things that were not difficult for them to swallow were your, your, your kilowatt per hour costs. That was not an issue for them because their cost savings were higher. I mean, were, were uh, far outweighed. Another thing we noticed is that the elasticity of the pricing, we could charge over market and uh, not because we were trying to, but because they didn't, they were the, the value, the total value they got from it uh, far outweighed the savings that they were receiving, far outweighed any additional costs that we might. So we, that allowed us to recover some other costs where in a competitive data center, uh, offsite uh, outsourced data center model, you wouldn't necessarily be able to do some of that. And so uh, those are Real some quick. things that we've learned. Real quick, just to clarify, when you're saying uh, over market, you mean over uh, the expense of what it might be to co-locate that equipment? Or yeah, right. yeah, yeah. So I mean, you know, if the if the retail market was, was I'm just going to throw that. I'm just making up numbers here, but yeah, two twenty five. Okay, that would be a pretty low retail. You know, we could charge a little bit more. 
And again, it's not that we priced it that way, but what we what we found is when we took a look at our numbers and what we needed to get our return, some of those dollar points cost per kilowatt were a little bit higher. And but when presented to the customer, um, when they took a look at the total cost of ownership, they re they recognized that you know that's I, I can pay for that. Um, and and it, it it they looked at it not just from the data center portion of it, but looked at it from a personnel, from a telecom, from a computer server, uh, the, the, the infrastructure, if you will, and then the data center side. So we were able to allow them to spread their their costs and their, their control of those costs over a much larger bucket versus just being handed a bill and saying, hey, this is what is owed every month. And that, um, uh, and that was the first light bulb for us with regards to the placement of the data that optimizes a customer's needs, whether it's costs or latency or what have you, it is a fairly significant force. I think that's uh, it's a key lesson that those who work at the co-location providers need to understand that just because you have a data center that's a, a, a nice facility that's you know tier tier three design and uh, you know n plus one architecture and never goes down and you have lots of network options that doesn't mean that it's going to be the ideal fit for every customer all the time. There's still scenarios where companies want and need to have that data living close to them. And yeah. having the ability to present that type of a customer with an option that will reduce their overall spend and allow them to keep that data close to them and that infrastructure close to them is extremely valuable. That's correct. So let's let's now get into a conversation you briefly mentioned about distributed, you know, compute. You know the the quote unquote edge, which, as I'm sure you'll agree, is no different than using the word cloud. Cloud means so many things to so many different people. Edge now basically is the new the new buzzword that means all things to all people. Um, so, what? How would you define the word edge, if at all? My definition of edge doesn't step an inch away from the business model. What's the customer's business model? So edge is not a location. It's, it's, not, it's certainly not a product. Uh, it is a, uh, we've really, we've seen that edge is, a, is a, essentially a, a combination of a, a, of a customer's business model uh, coupled with the actual delivery mechanism of edge. Uh, and it ultimately drives towards uh, a time and cost saving. If one of my customers' business models does not succeed in one of my in quote edge deployments, then that is not edge for them. It's another site, maybe. A lot of people have, have gotten very fixated on this is how I deliver the edge. And might be interesting, intellectual, very shiny, but if it doesn't resolve the customer's business model, then there's no point. The thing that's really, really important to answer is why. Why are you as a customer needing to put your stuff there at that point? So there are some folks that are talking, hey, we're, we're going to go build out many of these sites. Well, I've been in this space longer than pretty much everybody. So the question is, I know now, I, I know that the customers are not 
getting that answer from the edge today. And that's why there's still just a lot of a lot of conversations, a lot of definitions of edge, uh, a lot of requests for definitions of edge. If you spec edge, you have missed the point of edge. Now, there is going to be benefit down the road for specking of edge, but that's after the business model has already been resolved and the, and the why has been found out. And at that point, yeah, it's going to be a race to the hills. Everyone's going to be going as fast as they can. What we've been doing is focusing on what is that price? That makes that hum. What what works? What's the ecosystem? What what's the food chain that makes this work? And uh, and a lot of folks have tried to approach it very traditionally. Hey, we're going to go to these types of customer bases, and I think they're going to be sitting there for a while. So the uh, the for me, the definition of edge is very centered around the customer's need that uh, the, the business model that's being solved at that location. You have to allow the customer to produce revenue. And if that's not being done there, then that's not that's not edge. And again, the edge from a couple of years ago were, were these actual larger data centers. Uh, so, I mean, and in, in, in obviously those that have pushed out into the tier twos, I mean, there, there is a business model that is supporting that. Um, I tend to look pretty much, uh, my edge can be right next to um, a larger data center. I mean, one of our, uh, our proof of concept sites is 400 yards from one of the most fiber locations in the country. We did that for a reason. We actually shared that address, not the, the 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 numerical address, but the street address, just to see what the response would be in the market. Um, and, and that a lot of people were quite shocked. They're like, "We don't get it. Why would someone be in your data center and not just go all the way down the street to 400 yards and be in that data center?" And I'm like, "Well, it's their need for a business model." And if if they can get it resolved at that larger data center, then that is exactly where they're going to go. Uh, if they can get it resolved in mind, then that's where they're going to go. And so those are the things. Uh, so we tend to follow customers, uh, not ask customers to follow us. Being able to have that conversation with the customer such that you understand business case is what you So station around how that edge is or near as important. Yeah. How and why? It, it, it took a long year. Uh, took a long time because yeah, so there's a lot of different flavors. There's a lot of different permutations, and people talk about modular data centers and tower sites and interconnection points, and and it just you know it, smaller data centers nestled into larger data. There's just so many different ways people talk about it. What I do very 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 simply, and what I have been doing since 2012 is I place the data center exactly where the customer wants it. And I've learned how to do that at a very competitive cost point. And that is uh, without necessarily the economies of scale of multi-megawatt facilities. I can do that. I was able to do it at 100 kilowatts. I'm now able to do it even better at 200 kilowatts. And that is that is what I do. Now, how I do that, that's the permutation. Whether I put it in a large building or put it in a modular or put it, those are other things. And those are, those are, those are tools in my tool belt that, that allow me to, to address customers' needs. Once the market has started to understand, wait a second, I can place this anywhere I want. And the answer is yes. Then the next question is, okay, well, how, how, how would you put it into that location? Now, if you've only got one tool, you're going to have a problem. 
So that's what we've been developing is different ways of doing this. If they ask me, hey, I, I want to put this in a parking deck or I want to put this on the roof of a building or I want to put this on a cornfield or I want to put this out in a factory or I want to put this in the back of a public storage or the back of a 7 Eleven, I've done that. I know how to do that. So those are things that I can, I can, I can address those for them. Really, the hardest question is once you figure out, okay, now I can do that. Okay, I, I see you that you, you will place that anywhere. The question that we've had to address with many of these people, and some are not quite there yet. Let's be honest. We know that a lot of these people are not there yet. Uh, yes, they're raising their hand. Yes, they're nodding their head, but they're not opening their wallets. And that is a very, very, very important indicator of the immaturity of this market, even today. But they will come in and be like, okay, Hugh, that's great. I understand that. But, okay, why do I, you know, why, why do I need to be there? And so that's where we come down and say, well, if you don't need to be at that location, then where do you need to be? Because one of the lessons I learned um, in, from the, my wireless, my cellular days and the telecom access days is networks, pretty much every data network evolves in, in, in a pattern and then it repeats. It's all, it starts about connectivity, then it shifts to capacity, and then it optimizes, and then it rinses and repeats, and then it keeps going. It goes from optimization back to connectivity, because now they're expanding, and they build in the forces and get more capacity, and then they optimize it. The edge is, for some people, it's extending their connectivity. For some people, it's increasing their capacity. For others, it's helping with their optimization. There's some folks that say, hey, Hugh, I don't need you for that side of my network, but you know what? I need you right here. You're really going to help me get coverage here. Others are like, hey, I'm at XY location, and now I need to be at Z, and I got to get there. But I can't do that because I can't afford a five-megawatt facility out there. So that's a little different. And then obviously capacity um, is, is the best way to, uh, to explain that is when, when people talk about tier ones not being an edge, well, you know what? There's plenty of capacity that can be pulled out of some of these tier one markets, uh, whereas connectivity is going to be on the kind of the tier ends, if you will, where you're actually just you're, you're, you're pulling it out. And then optimization is pretty much everything in between. I think that's all great context and I appreciate you diving into that and that perspective, because it's not one that is frequently, frequently shared. And I know. Um, you know, how, let me ask you this, how often do you go to, you know, different industry, industry events and, you know, sit on panels and, and talk on panels? Oh, um, I mean, I, 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 I would say I'm fairly regular, I think on some of the, um, industry panels. I mean, there's others that sit down more often than I do, but gosh, I would say over the last couple of years, I've been probably on a couple hundred, I think maybe, maybe a little less, but. I mean, it's, I, I'm, I'm there a lot. When you're, when you're on those panels and having these conversations, do you think people debate that perspective or do you? Well, they certainly don't embrace it. They are. Uh, why why and, do you think that is? Is it because um, they just have their own, you know, self-interest and. Well, it's, it's, I have. In our industry, I have been uh, yelled at, actually, by some folks. Or, those were earlier on. I, I, I stopped getting yelled at probably in 2015 timeframe. And I do mean yell. They, I, people read in the face, what are you doing? Stop doing what you're doing. Th those kind of, I've had those statements. 
not as many as people just saying, okay, this is interesting. I don't really get it. I get the nice pat on the head. Um, I get a lot of people who think that I'm 32 or something and tell me I need to get a little bit more experience, which is fun. The, um, I, I think in, in essence, if you've been in the industry long enough, then you understand exactly what I'm saying. This is, this has happened many, many times. We're on our fourth to fifth version of this just within our own careers. So this is when people hear that, uh, there are people that will beat their chest and say, Hey, I'm an advocate of change. But when it comes down to it, uh, change can be a scary thing, especially when in some cases there are some people making a lot of money without change a lot. And uh, I will tell you this, when buildings were flipping, uh, no real estate owner cared. Now that buildings aren't flipping as much, NOI is a little bit more important. So guess why they care now? So they, they want to make more money. So now that people are recognizing that, wait a second, this is real money. It's, it's, it's producing returns. They're, they're listening more and they're asking how. We're getting a ton of copycats and that's not fine. I, I can't, I can't go after every piece of real estate out there uh, as much as I would like to. But I think that that it, it did take a little bit of of learning. Um, you had, I'll go back to my earlier statement, which is there were a lot of agendas being pushed, a lot from Silicon Valley, from you know, from from Redwood, Washington. I mean, a lot of agendas, and it took some of those people breaking up their agenda. It made others say, oh, okay, I, I think I start, I, I'm seeing this. And uh, that is where it's been, it's been quite interesting. And, and again, we've never come out with, hey, this is our technology and th- this is our, our, our product. And which is, again, for some people, they, a lot of people love to hit the easy button. Analysts like to hit the easy button. So there is, it's, it's, you've got a lot of folks that are like, hey, if I write about that, my boss is going to think I'm an idiot. Therefore, I'm not going to write about it, or at least I'm not going to give it what it needs to. So we were up against that for quite some time. But I, I did start seeing people listening, and that was good. I, I, I was definitely over talked at a lot of the panels, but that doesn't, that's not a big issue for me. I love listening to people and, and understanding what they have to say. And also, good news is there are a lot of us in this market that know exactly what I'm talking about and, and others like me have been talking about and they've been mentoring as well. So it's a, it's, I, I call it kind of, there's, there's a few big brothers in the industry that have, um, have helped steer us and, and helped us avoid, you can't be, you can't be too far out or else you will, you'll just outstretch your supply lines. You'll outstretch reasonability and then you, you don't succeed. And so there's a lot of them that actually started recognizing, wait a second, if this edge, if this if this micro edge market actually starts growing, it means more business to me. And that is probably the biggest shift I've seen in the last two years. The larger data centers are starting to recognize that the data sets that are residing in their data centers are congealing. They are a very specific type of data set. And what's starting to show up, and let's just say, you know, my site, for example, it, it's different. And it's 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 more action-based, more time re- time reactive, if you will. Uh, it has a very set purpose and uh, that, and it ultimately makes its way in. And so I'll, I'll throw a statistic out there that is a, a made up statistic, but I kind of show a little bit of relativity is that if I make one unit of data in one of my far flown microns data centers, it produces about seven or eight or nine data units back 
in, in a, a a middle tier tier two data center all the way out to a large data center. So, how does the? I know you you're informed and, and keep yourself abreast on software defined networking and SDN and the different cloud platforms. Um, yeah. Megaport, Equinix's uh, ECX platform, you know, Digital Realty's cloud platform, you know, it's these switches that allow people to not just peer locally, but also connect into other SaaS and IaaS providers all over the place. Does How does that play into the market that you're serving, if at all? Oh, uh, it's, it clearly defines the how and it supports the why. So we have, so be very clear, dark points, we've, we've drawn our line at the critical infrastructure piece and our customers come in and sit on top of us. So the most we'll do is kind of an orchestration layer that sits on top of us that allows them to, 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 to use our facilities as their own. But we actually, we were doing SDN and NFV uh, in some of our sites. We actually received an award on it as far back as 2016 as one of the first NFV networks in the U.S. Uh, because it is very, when you start separating out these microcosms, uh, the, these micro data centers that have their own microcosm in them, then that those kind of remote network functions, making them vir- uh, virtualized and making them uh, available to the customers at that site starts making a lot of sense, especially on the telecom side. And, and again, the optimization and making this a lot easier and also handling kind of the different requests that will start occurring at a place that wasn't necessarily designed for a lot of resources. Does that make sense? So it, it, it does come hand in glove. My customers that sit on top of me tend to have their own strategies. Sometimes I'll split off some uh, virtualized network services for them. Um, if that's what they need, uh, those tend to be uh, fairly uh, mundane, but um, like firewalls and so on and so forth, some routers and switches, but that's about it. But uh, it's very much, we are seeing that everyone that comes into our properties are definitely coming at this with a very particular strategy in that case. Yeah. So the the use case on our end that we see as it relates to the world that you're in is the customer who has their data center um, with their data in their data center that wants to connect to a Azure or AWS or whatever the platform cloud platform may be. They have a variety of different options. They can just do it through the public internet from that location mm-hmm. using whatever carrier that they have for DIA. They can do a direct connect and buy that from a CenturyLink or Zao or whoever, doesn't matter, which means that they have to sign a term contract uh, for that direct connect product to get into yep. any one of those platforms. Or the other option, which is what we are seeing more and more of and a huge advocate for, connect, you know, buy a point-to-point circuit from your data center back to any one of the regional data centers, established colocation facilities that has a SDN switch, uh, not an SDN switch, but a, like a Megaport or an Equinix or, or whatever, switch inside the facility, connect into that fabric, and now you have access to every cloud provider. That's uh, exactly right. Yeah, you have access to, you know, let's say you're a sales firm and you use um, Salesforce on a consistent basis, you can have basically a backdoor network into Salesforce that's not contingent upon the public internet being active and live. So it's providing all kinds of different unique case studies and options for customers that are far more flexible than having to buy a, you know, a, a long-term contract direct connect to these different 
cloud providers. And I think that is truly changing the game. And the conversations that we have with a lot of these network consultants on the, the microcorp side of my house, it's blowing, absolutely blowing their minds that their customers yeah. now have such flexibility at their fingertips, that they're on month-to-month contracts, that they can literally spin up and spin down virtual connections within their port and only pay a prorated amount for however long those those connections are live. Those conversations, I think, only further justify and back up the use case for the world that you're playing in, right? Yeah. Because um, people you say, well, if you want to connect to the edge, you have to be in our data center. Or if you want to connect to the core of the internet, you have to be in our data center. And the reality is, no, no you don't. No, you don't. No, you, you can don't. be on the edge and connect to the core of the internet. Yeah, yeah. So that's, you can get yeah. big. You can get big city and small city. Absolutely. Exactly, and that plays into a lot of the other projects that I know you and I are working on, which we'll we'll keep that hush for now um, until a later time. But the other thing I want to talk to you about, which we talked about very briefly before uh, we even jumped on on the podcast here, is your time that you spent at Fujitsu. Yeah, and you know, I'm I'm excited to hear that you actually spent time there because as many hours as we spent talking about a million other topics, we haven't hit on this one for some random reason. But talk to me about your time at Fujitsu and why what what you feel the value proposition is for that company in the marketplace today. And I, I uh, ask that, that, you for obvious reasons, but I'm curious what your perspective is. You mean Fujitsu's market value in this market? Is that what yeah, you're Yeah, I mean, so, so n- very few people have heard of Fujitsu outside of like, you know, all the other stuff that they do that is not related, not related to technology, not related to specifically hardware um, or devices, you know, that go in the data center. And yet that's a huge piece of their business and they have a very unique value proposition um, yeah. that when I found out about it, just my head exploded and I was like, oh my God, I can see a million use cases. Oh yeah, no, there's there's no doubt. So Fujitsu, so my, I would say that I was pretty much the same way uh, looking at Fujitsu at the time. So um, Fujitsu for me, um, so at Fiber Tower, Fujitsu was our our vendor, and uh, that's how I knew all the executives and so on and so forth. Um, I left Fiber Tower to start another company kind of a telecom import-export out of China, which was a wonderful lesson in humility. The, as I'm sure a lot of the listeners will kind of attest, I actually left San Fran at that time. Uh, Got married, didn't want to live in San Fran anymore. Wife was from Texas. We decided to move back to Texas. I spent a little bit of time here through some of my um, other endeavors. Uh, Dallas was one of our first markets at Fiber Tower, for example. Uh, anyway, so when I came back, um, I thought, hey, I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of help foster the entrepreneurial market here in, in, in Dallas. And I'll do some private placements and things like that. Beat my chest saying, hey, I, I know how it's done in Silicon Valley and they need my help here in Texas. And, uh, not quite the case. The, uh, the market here was fairly dry. There were some investments being done. But the the quality investments, the, the the difference between those that were trying to get started versus those that um, had a little bit of a leg up was quite a huge uh, discrepancy. And 
I, I was saying, okay, well, I, I'm not going to do that. So maybe I'll start up my own thing. And that's where my wife stepped in and said, no, you're not. Because she knows exactly what happens with entrepreneurs. And she was a little bit more knowledge than you're asking for. She was like, hey, we're going to have kids. So I was like, okay. So she literally made me sign a contract that I would not start a company for five years so that I would be focused on the kids, which totally makes sense. And I did. I signed it. And um, and so that's so I said, all right, I, I will. I will go find a job. Fujitsu was in Richardson. I live down in tech, uh, Dallas. And so um, I knew the executives. I called up and said, hey, you, you need anybody to, to kind of do any entrepreneurial type stuff within Fujitsu? And they were more than happy to welcome me in. And uh, what was awkward was that I was a representative of their 10th largest customer. So that always created a uh, little bit of an internal a political issue. Um, I had, um, uh, for my rank within the company, I had a lot more clout than uh, others wanted me to have. So that was kind of a, a joke, kind of a Wunderkind status that was not really deserved. But then again, I'd get calls from the executives saying, hey, Hugh, Private Tower's not buying that much this quarter. What happens? And, you know, I obviously was not able to tell them. But uh, so that was interesting. Uh, but then what I found out, Fujitsu was actually quite, quite interesting for me. They, um, to your point, they, um, they've got their hands in everything, every form of technology. And it is, uh, you know, there are certain company, co- uh, companies in the world that really are driving innovation. And Fujitsu is likely the, the least known out of all of them, but very much up there. It's a very large company. They produce in, in uh, it's funny, most of the, the cellular networks in Asia are driven by either Fujitsu or Huawei. I know there's others out there, but um, Fujitsu's got a significant presence. So, so all of a sudden started learning a whole bunch of technology when Fujitsu was trying to produce their, their own eNodeB. Uh, I was uh, a, a part of that project on the services side, on the operational side. So really, I, mean, I saw you know, 3G evolving into 4G. I was able to participate a lot in the 3GPP. And then uh, uh, ultimately kind of the, some of the 4G strategies in preparation for 5G, and this would have been eight years ago. Uh, so it was quite interesting, their hand in it, um, the connections Fujitsu has with AT&T and Verizon and all the other carriers is quite, quite extensive. So they really, uh, it was quite interesting. And also for me, um, I would say that I, as an executive, I, I learned the most there. Um, and I know that sounds odd in some cases. Everybody thinks that entrepreneurs, hey, we just learn. But guess what? We learn and we burn. Okay, so uh, if you can't learn more than you're burning, then you flame out. And uh, I recognized that some of the hubris that I had out in the Valley hadn't been fully rationalized. And when you try to take a Silicon Valley mindset and put it in front of a Japanese executive, <laughs> it doesn't work. Okay. Uh, two different levels of entrepreneurship, two different levels of communication, completely different languages, completely different etiquette. Um, and so at that point, I recognized, got it. I now have to use influence. I now have to use, um, I, I've got to find other ways for leverage. Um, and um, and that was that was huge for me. Very, very frustrating, um, but not negative towards Fujitsu. Um, frustrating in the sense of, you know, everybody wants it easy and I'm not any different than anybody else and recognizing that, yeah, I can be right all day long, but if I can't convince others that I'm right, I might as well be wrong. And so those are Japanese, by the way. Uh, well, you know, I, I, I would say I learned the pleasantries. Yeah. 
Um, and that was about it. I learned what not to eat at a Japanese restaurant with Japanese. Um, I, uh, <laughs> so uh, I also learned that you don't ever want to get into any drinking games with Japanese either. Um, those can, um, end very poorly. Um, I also, um, learned that, um, and this was funny, uh, and I say this with a ton of love, um, part of the Japanese culture is being there is half the battle. Okay. So if you had a rough night the night before with the Japanese executives and you're kind of stumbling and figuring out, Hey, I'll be a little bit late and I'll just make sure I'm, you know, I'm presentable. Japanese don't care. You're there. And these guys would show up and then promptly fall asleep. <laughs> and you're sitting there um, recognizing that, wow, I am, I'm suffering. I am in a place I don't want to be anymore. Um, and uh, what is happening here? And, uh, but the Jap- it's Japanese, it's, 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 you're there. And it's, uh, that was a lot of fun. Uh, and got to learn uh, a lot of these guys very, very well. So the Japanese and Germ- I mean, it's the German and the Japanese that own and run Fujitsu for the most part. Correct? Am I correct in that uh, understanding? I, uh, not so much the Germans. Um, the uh, just the Japanese. It's the Japanese, but it's isn't a lot of their their uh, equipment manufactured in Germany. I do believe so. Yeah. No, th- oh, no, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah. There, there's definitely a relationship. Absolutely. And, um, um, but there's the, um, uh, I, a lot of folks would make fun of the fact that given the fact that I'm of Germanic nature, um, and here you've inserted me into the Japanese culture. Uh, there's a lot of it that worked well and there's a lot of it that didn't work well. Uh, but yeah, there's definitely, um, uh, there's a significant presence, I believe in, in Germany with, uh, Fujitsu. I was at a, uh, a meeting two weeks ago and someone made me aware of a new product that Fujitsu actually just came out with that allows you to insert your hand into kind of like a Tom Jabbar black box, if you know that reference from Dune, but it's this black box that you put your hand into and it scans the blood vessels in your hands and it uses that as the biometric versus your fingerprint. Yeah. Um, because that, that, um, that mapping of the, blood vessels in your hand is even more unique than your fingerprint. And, That's right. And it also uh, makes it such that you don't have to have, you know, multiple people touching the same fingerprint scanner and having to constantly clean that thing off. Uh, and all the issues that, you know, I know you've probably dealt, you know, dealt with having to put your thumb on it or whatever fingers on it and having it not work a million. Like I've never, I don't think I've ever once had to use a biometric scanner and had it work the first time I put my flipping finger on it. I've always had to do it like 10 times. Yeah. 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 Fujitsu has more technology sitting on the shelf than most people have actually fully deployed. I mean, it's, it's amazing all the things that they have come up with. Um, that, ha- that are, uh, being licensed by somebody else. Right? It's, it just really, it's, it's truly fascinating, the innovation. Yeah, that. And then the other piece that I appreciate a lot with the work I do with InfraGuard and just following national security and what's going on in the world and how, you know, it's, for those who don't aware, you know, we are not aware, we are, we are at war with Russia and China and, you know, North Korea and other nations around the world from a cybersecurity perspective. Yeah, and there, there may not be you know direct lives being lost because of that war, but there are billions upon billions of dollars being lost on a monthly basis uh, due to data and uh, IP being siphoned out of our our country. And it's you know I've been scratching my head wondering how the heck it is and why it is that most Americans are not aware of the reality that you know Dell, HP, 
super micro, you know, name a hardware manufacturer is all being manufactured in China. And, you know, for, for people not to think that if the, if the motherboards and the chipsets are all being made in China, of course, they're going to be smart enough to realize, well, we could probably tweak with this. We could insert a little rice sized uh, chip of our own on this motherboard that people might not recognize uh, and be able to access remotely whatever is going on on that device. Um, yeah. Sure enough, that's exactly what we find out is going on. Um, yeah. So being able to play with a manufacturer who's delivering the type of hardware that you know EMC NetApp uh, has, and that you know even on the on the in the office the the consumer devices, the Internet of Things devices uh, that's not being manufactured in China is for me a game changer. And I think more states and our federal government are starting to wake up to to that paradigm and that reality. And everyone has their own, you know. Long story short, if Japan has some kind of sniffer device on my hardware, I'm less concerned than if one of the nations that we're proactively, you know, at war with has yeah. has that sniffer device. And it's a simple, simple reality. And when we have those conversations with our customers, the light bulbs start to go off and they start asking more questions and getting interested in in that product set. And I generally yeah. have never sold hardware ever, and I still don't try to. But I think that is such a compelling use case for something like uh, Fujitsu that you know I want to sing that from from the hills. Yeah, um, for those reasons. Yeah, I would absolutely agree. And it, uh, a lot of people don't realize the majority of North America's network runs off of Fujitsu from the optical standpoint. Yeah. So one of the other, and I'm going to go on a total different tangent here. Uh, but if anyone listening wants to learn more about Fujitsu, please reach out <laughs> to to to, uh, to me directly. I'd love to have that conversation with you um, and talk you through all all the different ways that um, it makes sense for you to at least start considering them as a as a provider. Uh, and I'll stop with that sales pitch. So, one of the conversations that I know we've spent a lot of time talking about is not just what we do. You know, a lot of the conversation that we've had today is about what we do and how we got into doing what we do, but it's the why we do what we do, right? And it's in the how we do what we do. Um, and I'm curious, I know you're a man of faith and you're a man of, of deep faith and uh, a humble, compassionate, you know, loving human, married with kids. Um, and it's not easy in this day and age to live that live that life, but can you speak a little bit to, you know, when you wake up every day, like what, what is it that drives you and that motivates you? Um, well, I mean, first thing every morning is today is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. That is, um, um, every day is a blessing. And, um, uh, obviously, uh, I came to faith later in my life. Uh, and so I, saw a lot of the um, struggle that I was going through uh, that was very self-serving. Um, entrepreneurs in general need to be have some measure of self-serving because obviously that's kind of how we feed ourselves and feed our families. But I started recognizing that I don't have to play the way the rest of the world plays. And I assure you that has cost me over the course of my life more money than my wife would ever want to hear. But the, uh, so obviously doing business with honesty, obviously uh, trying to, we're not perfect. 
uh, we make mistakes all the time, but try to to own those imperfections and try to demonstrate uh, the grace that we've all been given in a work environment. Uh, and there are certain decisions that we've made as a company that we are not going to do certain things, no matter what the profit margin may be. There are certain behaviors that we don't necessarily allow. Uh, and I don't mean uh, any particular behaviors, but just obviously, you know, the things that we are, you know, I can be wrong out on the market. I, I really do frown online. So those are some things that, and again, I can be incorrect all day long, but we all know that there's a difference between lying and being incorrect. So the so there are certain things that as you go out and you, you you take this type of when you try to push a market out and there is there's a lot of as you well know Sean I mean as you go and start your company there's a lot of invested interest there's a lot of there's a lot of pain there's a lot of sacrifice there's a lot of why not me happening and then there's a lot of yeah look at me look at me I'm successful and so those are things that as a whole that it's 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 a significant challenge to my faith because every time I have to always remind myself to say, you know, actually, I, I did not do that. Uh, that 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 was a gift, and there's a reason for that gift, so let me find out what that gift is. Some of the things that I, I we do work with is, is as we push out the technology, one of the blessings of, of, of running your own company is that you can make some of those choices. You can choose to lift platforms up that do help the greater good. I, I, I think, and in, in one thing that I, I think is I've, I've ha- received a lot of pushback on from people is a lot of people don't understand why I give. And I, I, that, that's going to sound like a self-righteous statement. I know, and I guess I'll own it, but the, what I mean by give is, and I, you know, Sean, you're seeing a little bit of this in, in some of the stuff we're working on is I get a lot of pushback from, from my board of, Hey, Hugh, you, you, you got to fight for yourself. And, but if you believe in something bigger, I agree. You got to fight for yourself, but it's not about the return for me, which, by the way, is a very dangerous thing to say to your investors, especially at a board meeting. Now, obviously, returns are very, very important, and I want returns, but I also know that there, there's a lot of sacrifice on the battlefield, and you're going to be right and you're going to be wrong. At times when you're right, you kind of want to hold it in a little bit so that you don't those that have might have been on the losing side of that of, of that of that tussle, if you will, aren't necessarily upset with you. But when you lose, you you want those that did win to kind of help you up as well. And I, I fully believe in in creating an environment. Which, by the way, I got paid a tremendous compliment the other day. Which I, I'm sharing it here not as a look at me, but as a it really was important to me uh, from one of my competitors. And I'm, when I say competitors, I mean competitors. And what this person said was, Hugh, you are arguably one of the nicest people in our field. And I can't tell you, Sean, how good that made me feel. Uh, it made me proud when I went home that day to tell my kids because, you know, they look at me and ask me what I do and they can see the stress on my face. They can see the stuff that, you know, hey, girls, like we can't do that this week because <laughs> daddy had to put some money in the business. And so those are things that when you get those little pats on the back, moments that you are able to, to, to glorify God. Uh, through that and 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 shine that light somewhere. You know, it means a lot. And I, I think a lot of people do tend to keep their faith out of business. I can't. Uh, I, I meet regularly with people in the industry that are strong Christians. And we always ask ourselves, how do you demonstrate Christ in your life on a daily basis, even when you physically want to kill the person across the table from you? And those are, those are, those are good moments.
Yeah, those are those are daily, if not weekly, struggles for for yeah. at least myself. But I know it's for for people like you who are passionate about what you do. You don't stop. You can't stop. You won't stop. You're in the market. Um, you're talking to you know dozens, if not a, over a hundred people every day. Um, so we're we're forced to just be up against that paradigm on a regular basis. Yeah, uh, I think that's you know w- what you're speaking to is exactly what we resonated on very quickly when when we sat down and first met, and it's something that I you know I admire and respect about you. And there's very yeah, thank uh, you. There's very few people in our space who who operate on that level, and there are those who give the lip service to it, and then they go back to you know they go back to the worldly pursuits. Um, yeah, and unfortunately, you know, I had that happen to me about a month and a half ago, where I had a partner of mine that I work with who sat down and had great conversations with, you know, Sean, I do, you know, I do business on a handshake, yada, yada. And then the person went back on their word and started throwing a hissy fit about, you know, basically going back on their word. And I was like, we had this conversation. We sat down, we shook hands on this. We discussed it. We have it in writing and just gave me a completely different attitude because I know he's dealing with something else in his life, but it's when the rubber meets the road and your back is up against the wall where your personality and your um, your principles shine through. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. It, yeah, you know that that's something that we keep pointing. I'm not going to start, you know, getting up in my pulpit right now. But the a very misused phrase, uh, misused quote out of the Bible is, uh, "Money is the root of all evil." It's the love of money is the root of all evil. And so when someone puts their love for that asset above love for their partner or love for uh, the, the, the project that they're working on. Man, I've seen it. I mean, one of my companies, we just started rocking and rolling and you see that first seven figure thing come in and all of a sudden everyone's got the knives out. And, and we, you know, you would have just been hugging each other the day before, but as soon as that check showed up, it was it was over. And um, look, we we see people all day long. We're seeing them right now in the news, all going to jail because their pursuit, their pursuit of something else. Yeah, I th- you know, for better or worse, I thankfully learned that lesson pretty early on in my career um, in one of my very first startups where we had uh, one of our best friends who we lived with even um, knew his family, spent you know Thanksgiving and Christmas at his house who went behind everyone's backs and started devising a scheme to screw over all the people that he had built the company with. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. So it was, it was those types of lessons and just having, thankfully I've had in my life, lots of examples of people who um, lived with principle uh, and yeah. demonstrated that day in and day out. And so for me, that's, it's a struggle obviously, but my goal is to surround myself with more people like that so that I don't have to, question <laughs> whether yeah, or not the that's exactly right. screw me right and that's, yeah, that's right know, that's why we're playing together that's why i'm very you know appreciative of you spending the time to, to talk here because it's a lesson yeah, that a lot of people need to hear and need to learn either directly or indirectly that you know that struggle is real um and being able to wake up every day and know that the people you're basically going to war with and going to battle with have your back and truly have your back not just in good times but in bad times uh yeah. it's, it's very important. Those bad, those bad times show up on cue. <laughs> right. 
Yeah, I've got uh, a ranger and a marine that work with me now, which they're they're two of my favorite people in very short order, and both of them have taught me so so much about yeah. just dealing dealing with the day to day when I'm freaking the heck out and you know my head's about to explode with just frustration. You know, they look at me and they're like, "Terio." you're not being shot at right now, but yeah. <laughs> you don't have someone dying in your arms right now while you're being shot at, while you're trying to get yeah. out of a situation that you have no idea how to get out of. So this is not a problem. Yeah. We'll yeah. take care of this. This is okay. Yeah. Oh, that's phenomenal. That's always phenomenal advice. And, and, you know, we've got, um, we got some of those on our, our crew too. And, and, uh, and it's um, the perspective they provide is beyond anything. And they could, they could be half your age and still be wiser. Those are, those are always great grounding moments. So I'll, I'll ask you a few final questions here, but what, is there a moment that you had in your career from a professional standpoint where you just had one of those, where you could close your eyes and just think back right to that moment where you, a, a specific lesson was learned and what, you know, what was that moment and what was the lesson that learned? When I learned the difference between IQ and EQ. And let's, let's define those two for, for those listening who may not know. So obviously IQ, the intelligent quotient, everybody knows about that. Um, and then the other one is the emotional quotient. The uh, IQ is all about brilliance and understanding. Um, uh, I, I mean, uh, uh, how to execute on, on calculus and, and just, you, you just see things that are very, very, uh, uh, again, it's, it's, it's all about just comprehension of ideas, but on the EQ, it's how to work with others. And we've always played around with that, um, phrase, you know, the, um, A students build the world, but the C students run it. Now, I'm an A student guy. I, I, I've got more degrees than I care to think about. I've been educated, prep school, blessed beyond means on education. And it's really, 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 really hard to hear that. Because my world is not <laughs> A students. Hey, man, A students, we built the world and we run it. And we fund it. Okay, so there's always that pecking order. Um, and I learned really early in my career that that couldn't be further from the truth. Far, far from the truth. My academics, my ability to look at things and pontificate on subject matters that have absolutely no relevance whatsoever to a conversation, which obviously you, Sean, and I over a couple of those uh, drinks out in Hawaii definitely enjoyed. Uh, and those are great. That's fantastic. So I can, so I can, I can read uh, Greek and Latin. That's fantastic. Awesome. But why? What's the importance? And when you get, but when you get, and I spend more time focused on that and keep in mind that that's an inward focus. That's look at me. I'm, I'm bettering myself. Someone with high EQ is someone who didn't, it's not because they're not smart. By no means, that's not the same thing. They just didn't have they didn't focus so much on that side of it. And they took what they had. In some cases, maybe they had higher IQs than anybody else, but they just said, wow, this is out of control. I need to bring this down a little bit. Or maybe they didn't have so much and they had to do with what, you know, good Lord gave them. 
and they focused on others. And they learned, how do I get what I want by giving someone what they want? And I had a board meeting many, many years ago, over 20 years ago. And I won't tell you the person's name. Um, he's still in the industry. Um, and right there in one of our meetings, he said, Hugh, I think you need to sit down, learn to be quiet is not quite a lesson I've learned yet, but he said, you got to sit down. And then he said, we'll talk afterwards. So I'm sitting there going, how did I just get hushed? I got hushed in front of the board. So, okay, great. So I'm all hot and bothered. He pulls me out and he goes, Hugh, I'm not going to argue with you that you might be the smartest guy in that room. And I'm like, yeah, heck yeah, I am. Okay. And he says, but you can't lead anybody. John, I can't tell you what it's like to get your knees clipped by a billionaire. Clipped. At 29 years of age. 28. Yeah, 20, yeah, so either 29 or 28. Clipped. And that was it. And then I recognized, wow, I have been given a great gift. High IQ, this is all great. And I am totally not using any of it. Because the business is done by those that are focusing on others. Now, granted, we have a lot of folks that use that, and it becomes manipulation, and we got that. But I'm talking, trying to apply to what can I do to help someone else? How can I help them help themselves? And uh, and again, I know that sounds kind of taking a high road here, but in, just in business, that's what it's about. How how do you get the parts that you want, okay, and give them parts that they want so that people walk away with a win-win? And again, it's not from a, hey, feel good, we all won. Because uh, we know it's a lot more complicated than that. But if you're the only one winning in the room, a lot of people stop playing with you. I found, and, and again, I, that lesson wasn't learned that day. It took multiple repetitions of that lesson to show up. Uh, it eventually got beaten into me. And, um, and that was uh, a, a turning point in my life, in my career. I mean, that's, that's how I came to faith. That's how, obviously, I figured out that, wow, I, I do need to pay attention to others. And that um, it was a, it was a, it was a, it was clearly a turning point in my life. Great one, man. That's probably the best answer that I've had to to that question. No, (laughs) what's crazy, man, is I had the exact same situation play out for me when I was 18 in college. And I had a Jesuit priest who became a very close friend of mine who was head of the campus ministry and for the, the, uh, all the Jesuits on the campus sit me down one day and he said, Sean, I, I love you. I respect you. You're, you're one of the smartest students, I think, in this whole school. You have such a big heart, but you are the worst listener I think I've ever met. <laughs> That's right. And uh, ironically, like a week later, I had another good friend of mine sit me down and have the exact same conversation, you know, totally separate. They didn't even know, they didn't really interact with one another, so they didn't plan it, but she had the same conversation with me. And that really made me stop and think, huh? Maybe I need to rethink my approach because if my approach really is to have people listen to me and that's not happening, yeah. I'm having yeah. the exact opposite happen. Maybe I should retool. Um, yeah. And that set me on a completely different path in my life than the one I, I was going on. Yeah, absolutely. And what's, what, what's, what's funny about the hearing part of it is that I, I find it humorous because people will say, hey, he, you got two ears and one mouth uh, for a reason. I love it because it's good. Yeah, but God took one of mine away. <laughs> I can only hear out of one ear. 
So, hey, just for everyone listening, if you're ever sitting to my right side, I can't hear a word you're saying. <laughs> ah, ah, well, Hugh, thank you so much for spending the time. I have one last question. Absolutely. Please. Our way. Do you love data centers? Oh, my gosh. I love data centers. I adore data centers. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, my friend. We will be talking. Hey, thank you so much. And for those listeners who do want to reach out to you or get a hold of you or hear more about Dart Points, how how can they get a hold of you? LinkedIn is is the best way. Um, I respond. I, I reply back to messages. So uh, look for me on LinkedIn. All right, folks. Have a good one. And Hugh, have a blessed day. We will talk soon. You too. All right. Take care now. So there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And before I sign off, I really need you to know that we really do love data centers over here at Open Spectrum. It's not just a, a catchy tagline for a podcast. They are our passion and our livelihood. And I encourage you to learn more about how we serve buyers, service providers, agents, master agents, and investors in the data center hosting network and cloud services space. Uh, you can check out our website at www.openspectruminc.com where you can download a mountain of free content that we produce, such as the numerous regional market reports and excerpts from our book, The Data Center Collocation Industry Playbook, that is now on its fourth edition. And I think at this point, we've sold close to over 1,200 copies of the book. You can also read the show notes and links from this podcast at www.openspectruminc.com forward slash I love data centers. Have a great week, and I will see you and hopefully hear from you soon. I love data centers. 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 I love data centers.